Hello and welcome to episode 1121 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our supporters on Patreon. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hi. You and I were just talking before we started recording about how impossible it is to find playoff stats. It's crazy. It's like, I know that regular season stats are more meaningful and the things that we use to judge players' careers and do most of our analysis of. But every October, we get in this weird spot where the things that are happening in the game are like inaccessible to us all of a sudden. It's like harder to find playoff stats for Major League Baseball than it is to find like low-level indie ball stats or something. I don't know. <laughs> There's just like no no designated place for this. You can't find them on fan graphs. You can't find them at Baseball Prospectus. You can't find them in the usual places. I'm like scrambling and going to websites I never go to to figure out what is actually happening in the postseason. Why do we do this to I ourselves? Know. It was easier for me to look up how often Nick Sine got hit in like yeah. summer college leagues than it is to find a league postseason ERA. <laughs> I know. Which, by the way, is like almost five yeah, right now. But which this year. I went to ESPN's team stats because they have postseason stats and they say the league average ERA for Major League Baseball in the postseason right now for starters is 8.53 <laughs> which is wrong by like three and a half runs I think I think what the page is doing is just averaging the team ERAs so you have like <laughs> The Rockies with a 27 team ERA and the Twins with an 18 team ERA and their one games are counting as much as like the Cubs and the Nats having low ERAs in three games apiece. So that's like the best place I know how to look. So this is this is rough. I don't know. I know. Maybe maybe the, the easiest place to go to that has everything together is MLB.com that has the postseason stats right there, except they're just like formatted horribly and yeah. they don't have the numbers you necessarily want and they don't combine them for the league. And it's just it's clumsy. The MLB.com stat pages are not good baseball reference you have to go digging fan graphs it's even worse because i don't think we have anything that's <laughs> even team-based yeah. and you have to like click an impossibly small little button on a player page just to see what they've done in the playoffs and th- we have this conversation probably every year but i mean on one hand you talk about october performance is like the only performance that matters right if you talk to a broadcaster these are the most important games that anyone will ever play in their career and yet we just treat the numbers like they don't <laughs> exist like they just a player goes into October and it's like Daniel Descalso just hit his 30th career playoff home run probably. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, it's like, it's great that you could pull that up, yeah. but why don't we use, why do we ignore these numbers for 11 months of the, of the year? It's it's baseball. I mean, the, things are happening and sure, the level of competition is a little bit higher, but this is real. Barry Bonds' career home run record is not the record that we think that it is because he homered in the playoffs. Why doesn't it count? Yeah, there was a stat during the Cleveland broadcast last night, the Yankees-Indians game about Roberto Perez having like the second highest home run percentage in the playoffs for any player ever or something crazy (laughs) like that. I would never know that. There's no way to look that up easily. I guess it's probably from Elias or something. But yeah, I mean, we actually got a a question about this and someone was asking us, a listener named Brett, about how you compare like a Hall of Fame type regular season career with postseason Hall of Fame-ness, like if you're just an incredible postseason player, how much should that count? How do you weight it? I've had that kind of conversation on the podcast before, but it's it's really hard to know, I guess, how much to credit a player for their postseason performance because it's something that some players don't have the opportunity to do. That's always the comeback, I guess, is that so-and-so might have great postseason stats, but that's because he played on great teams and got a lot of chances to play in the postseason and maybe he had something 
anything to do with the fact that those teams are making the postseason. But, you know, Mike Trout has barely any postseason stats, and that's obviously not his fault. So it's kind of a weird thing where in the regular season, obviously everyone has the same opportunity to play the same number of games, and that is not the case in the playoffs. Right, but it's still, it seems like the numbers should at least be I don't know, supplemental instead of impossible to find. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just, so one of, there's a conversation, uh, David Ortiz will make the Hall of Fame almost certainly, and just using the numbers at baseball reference, because that's where I already am, David Ortiz has a career wins above replacement there of uh, about 55, and Edgar Martinez is at 68. Therefore, just on that basis alone, why should David Ortiz make the Hall of Fame and Edgar Martinez shouldn't? Well, easy answer, they both should. <laughs> but one of the things that, because David Ortiz did so well in the playoffs, he had 85 career games in the playoffs he batted almost 400 times and of course he was very good mm-hmm. in the in the playoffs and Edgar Martinez batted 34 times he had like a third as much playoff playing time and and so that doesn't really mean anything about Edgar Martinez or David Ortiz but the fact that Ortiz was so good in the playoffs certainly shouldn't not count so it's just a it really comes down to just what kind of constant you want to use to weight those playoff at bats a little extra because I think that it makes sense that they should and I certainly would think that from a statistical standpoint that would put David Ortiz over the top one of the things that I think gets weirdly lost with Derek Jeter and I'm sorry to go here but I am going to praise Derek Jeter people uh, point to the fact that I think let's see let me pull up these playoff numbers which is not easy but I'm gonna do it (laughs) yeah Derek Jeter obviously made the playoffs like all the time so that makes this easy to compare his playoff performance and his regular season performance but uh, let's go with whatever batting average who cares it's a proxy Derek Jeter career regular season batted 310 Derek Jeter career in the playoffs batted 308 I have seen this point used dozens of times to say that Derek Jeter, not clutch, Mm -hmm. but actually, (laughs) that's amazing because he hit 308 in the playoffs against the best pitchers in baseball, and he did this over more than 700 plate appearances. So those numbers, if anything, suggest that Derek Jeter, very clutch in the playoffs. So the fact that he, he had twice as much postseason playing time as David Ortiz had over his career. So not that there was ever any question that Derek Jeter is going to make the Hall of Fame, but like his playoff case is impeccable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. There is one excellent site, I think just a generally and underrated site, the Baseball Gauge at thebaseballgauge.com, which I've mentioned before. Dan Hirsch, who runs that site, has helped me with a, a lot of research for articles. They do have postseason stats pages that are more useful than many others where you can look at batting and pitching and you can sort by starting pitchers or relief pitchers or by position and ballpark and team so there's uh, a bit more you can do at that site so as always the baseball gauge surprises me with how much it actually includes so everyone go check out that site support that site i always find it very helpful so i want to talk about one main topic i guess there are just so many things we could potentially talk about it's like during the regular season there are constantly games going on but we can't just talk about individual games that would be super boring for everyone but in the playoffs every game that is played is a potential podcast topic there is some decision some individual performance that people would want to hear us talk about some managerial mistake potentially so there have been a whole lot of those since the last time we talked like five days ago or something so that's a lot of ground to cover and in the playoffs (laughs) everything kind of 
has a very short expiration date because there are many more games the next day and people don't want to hear about games and series that are already over. We now have eliminated teams, of course. The Diamondbacks are done. The Red Sox are done. So we can talk a bit about probably all series at some point and some of the most notable decisions. But I did want to start just by talking about this idea that we're seeing some revolutionary pitching usage or player usage in these playoffs because I think that's been kind of a consensus or a prevailing opinion that there are unusual things happening. And I want to kind of question that or or at least wonder to what extent that is actually true and to what extent we're just seeing some things by happenstance. It's like the tweet that Carson had last night where he said, it's the future. Every pitcher only throws a third of an inning. Every club has 27 pitchers. There are no batters. There aren't even bats. And it kind of felt like that because we've seen a lot of starters pulled incredibly early. We've seen teams do things like you know, bring Chris Sale back in relief. Okay, that's not unusual. But the Astros bringing Justin Verlander back in relief in Game 4, even though he was slated to start in Game 5, that was weird. I didn't see that coming. We've seen a ton of quick hooks, and Bradford Doolittle from ESPN pointed this out last night, or I guess he was just relaying word from ESPN Stats and Info, and the stat was with Cleveland's Trevor Bauer departing after one and two-thirds innings in New York, much to your dismay, I know. That's now 10 starters who have gone three or fewer innings this postseason. There were seven such starts in the entire 2016 postseason, and the all-time record is 12, set in 2011. Crazy stuff, says Bradford. And I wonder how crazy it is. I mean, on the one hand, whenever you say something is like an all-time playoff record, that always sounds more impressive than it actually is because (laughs) we're in this new playoff format. There are many more games, there are more series. So you're essentially just giving today's players a huge head start on most of the baseball players in history who only had the opportunity to play one playoff series or two playoff series. So that doesn't mean so much, but You know, we certainly have seen a lot of starters get yanked very quickly this season. And so there's been a lot of talk about bullpenning, and yet no team has actually intended to bullpen in the way that most people talk about it, right? It's just, it's people getting pulled early because they're bad and then the bullpen comes in. But even with like Severino or, you know, other people in the wildcard game who were bad or gray or whatever, it was not intentional tactic. So I don't know. We're at a place now where I think the average starting pitcher ERA, honestly, we just tried to calculate it three different ways, (laughs) three different sites and got three different answers. I tried it ESPN and the baseball gauge. You try it baseball reference. We got three different answers for what the actual starting pitcher ERA this postseason is, but it appears to be very close to five. So it is not over eight. (laughs) No. So what does that mean, if anything, to you? Do you think there's anything different going on here from a tactical perspective or is this just a run of bad starts? Whenever you were watching a a single game when watching the the Red Sox and the Astros yesterday and Chris Sale was relieving 
first and I saw him warming up in the bullpen, which I thought was was weird. But I figure, OK, this this kind of makes sense because he's is available and the Red Sox have their backs against the wall. They have nothing left to lose. No game is more important than this game. They just need to do what they can to keep this game under control, give themselves a chance to win, which yeah. sale helped them do. So it made sense. And then when the Astros started warming up Justin Verlander, I thought, well, that's weird. I definitely wouldn't have expected it. But we, I have to, always have to stop myself from assuming that weird is bad or that weird is really good. But I figured, well, okay, they're warming up Verlander, but they're going to have Keuchel, so he's fine. And if Verlander relieves for a few innings, it's probably not going to disrupt his his championship series schedule too much. And and you know, I bet AJ Hinch has just a long enough memory to remember that Will Harris kind of started the meltdown in 2015 against the Royals. And in reality, the Astros haven't really had a, a very reliable middle reliever recently. Uh, they've only had Ken Giles, who's been you know, a, a dominant closer inside the park home run be damned. So I figure, well, maybe AJ Hinch just doesn't really trust his middle relief for pretty good reason. Mm-hmm. And he just wants someone to to bridge the gap to Ken Giles. And so the, the fact of the matter is that yesterday we saw Rick Porcello and Charlie Morton and they were relieved by Chris Sale and Justin Verlander, yeah. such that if you saw <laughs> Sale and Verlander pitching in the later innings and he just flipped on TV, you would have assumed that they started. Right. So it was weird. But whenever you have some sort of possible sweeping trend, every single individual case is kind of excusable. You can come up with a reason for why it's happening. There's a a pattern of increasing open-mindedness, I guess, and I think that it is breaking down some walls. I don't think that any of this is intentional, but I certainly don't think that managers are forgetting that there's a difference between a starter and a reliever, but there is maybe more of an idea of, okay, every out here is important. We're in the playoffs, and we are probably able to use pitchers in ways that they're not quite necessarily so familiar with. We can use them out of the bullpen. Everyone is, has got a whole bunch of adrenaline, and nothing is more important than this, so let's just try to get as many outs as possible. I think the fact of the matter is that entering play, I think yesterday, playoff starter ERA was over six, yeah. so that kind of helps to explain why starters were... Right having such short outings but if anything there might be there might be a little hint of an overcorrection in that we've seen plenty of managers already this month react promptly to a starter who's having a uh, yeah. a bad beginning and saying okay you're done but it, now you you and I have both seen research that indicates so that's not really predictive right mm-hmm. like Mitchell Lickman is his published stuff on this like all the time that a starter who's having a bad inning doesn't really mean that he's going to have a bad next inning so mm-hmm. like if you think about Severino coming out against the twins in the first inning like I don't think anybody well I certainly I wasn't watching that thinking well he's going to allow 30 runs if you let him right yeah yeah I yeah. figured well mm-hmm. that's a bad start yes but instead of managers leading on their starters too far now they're just leading on them a little less for, like Dusty Baker Mm-hmm. Dusty Baker pulled it. Now, Max Scherzer pitched into the seventh inning yeah. yesterday, so it's not like he didn't get a chance, and he was pulled after he allowed his first hit. And I know that he had a, a hamstring injury, but do you think Dusty Baker, any other year of his life, would have pulled a pitcher like Max Scherzer to go to the Nationals <laughs> middle relief after he allowed his first hit of the game? Yeah, I mean, that seems unlikely. I, I don't know whether... Dusty is like paying attention to third time through the order and and necessarily following that. I would imagine that that had more to do with the hamstring and just not wanting to push him too hard than any baseball-wide trend. I mean, I don't know. That's the kind of thing where... I mean, what was the other game? Wasn't there a, a game... I'm terrible at remembering which playoff <laughs> events happened in which games and which years, but... <laughs> 
there, what was the game where the Nationals made a, a similar decision where they took out a starter? Maybe it was Scherzer after like eight and two thirds or something like that. Oh, yeah, I think it was against the Giants, right? Yeah. Was it Jordan Zimmerman? Oh, yes. It, yeah, it was right. And brought in the closer and you know, analytically, at least it was probably the right call. Once you get a starter that deep into the game, generally, you know, your typical postseason reliever is going to be more effective than that. And if you have your best reliever available, then definitely going to be better than that, at least based on your expectation. But that was not the case. That was what Drew Storen, right? So, you know, I don't know. This was earlier in the game, of course, but I'd have to think it has more to do with Scherzer's health than anything because Scherzer would never want to leave the game if it was left up to him. So I think you're right, though. That's kind of what I was thinking, that maybe it's just that managers, if there is anything they're doing differently, it's just that they're being more aggressive so that if a starter is pitching poorly, he will be removed from the game rather than allowed to regress essentially so if you left in say Luis Severino in that wild card game most likely he would have settled down at some point or he would have stopped allowing runs at that rate and could have brought his ERA for that game down but Joe Girardi I think wisely did not wait and so he never had an opportunity to but it wasn't that Girardi wanted to take Severino out after a third of an inning obviously in Monday's game he left him in for seven innings because he was pitching very well and I don't know if he would have left him in for seven in the wild card game but I'm sure he would have been happy to get five or six out of him if he was pitching that well but Severino just didn't have his command or maybe he was a little amped up I don't know so I think that probably has a lot to do with it and I think Mitchell Lickman also was pointing out on Twitter that this is a pretty good collection of offensive teams. He noted that of the eight last remaining playoff teams, their average run scored per game with both teams combined above average for their starting lineups was 0.7 runs, which is a lot. So you're just going into the game, you're looking at 10 runs a game, at least against regular season pitching. And then you have the juiced ball that maybe people still aren't used to. You have the weather. It was humid and and warm as I was sitting in the press box in New York last night. Kind of unusual. And you also have a good collection of hitters' parks. Mitchell also mentioned that the average park factor for runs among all these teams was 1.016. So that's skewing things a little bit too. So I don't know. It seems as if there's some sort of revolution happening here, but I, I think maybe we might be overplaying that a bit, and I wouldn't be surprised if the rest of the playoffs sort of settled down in that respect. Yeah, and you you think, well, maybe maybe the trend is going to catch on from last year as teams are going to heavily use their best reliever, just like the Indians did with Andrew Miller, etc. Maybe after these playoffs, we can stop talking about Andrew Miller every time we talk <laughs> about the playoffs. But now it's like, if anything, the trend is just like, well, let's use our best starter in relief for a few innings at a time. So I, I don't really know what the trend is is here except that managers I guess have demonstrated that they're not going to push starters too deep which is good it's one of the things we've been arguing for for I don't know basically ever Mm -hmm. or at least as long as we've had some numbers to back it up I would not expect that managers all of a sudden had some light bulb click on above them that says starters can only go three innings and no more than that because that's just not managers are not that extreme they don't want to have that sort of departure and the fact of the matter is that yesterday Luis Severino went seven innings against the Indians and he went seven innings because he was great he threw 113 pitches and now granted maybe he was able to throw 
113 pitches because Joe Girardi did not lean on him too hard when he made his first start. He threw, I don't know what it was, like 26 pitches or something, so he was probably fresh. Mm -hmm. And then, so he was able to go seven innings, and Tommy Canley cleaned up the mess. One thing, this isn't necessarily directly related, but one thing that I want to slide in just because I don't want to let it just go by. During the regular season, this is for all teams, just league average, not just for the teams in the playoffs. Each team averaged 4.7 runs scored per nine innings. Now, in the playoffs this year, uh, so far the average is 4.8 runs per nine innings. So run scoring is up one-tenth of one run each team per nine innings. Well, the average game length per nine innings in the regular season, 185 minutes. Mm -hmm. That is uh, three hours and five minutes per nine innings. Do you have a guess for the playoff average game duration per nine innings? This year... So, uh, 185, you said, is regular season. I will say, man, the game I was at yesterday just felt endless. It was (laughs) so slow. Uh, I would say one nine mm, man i can't really think of a game that's been like <laughs> i'm trying to think of like what the short game in these playoffs has been i guess they're i'll tell you the cubs, i'll tell you the shortest cubs, game like the hendrix game maybe cubs and nationals game one of their yeah. series the shortest game of the playoffs three hours and two minutes yeah right so man uh, probably like 205 225 oh my goodness three hours and 45 minutes this is not this is not per game this is per nine innings so we're talking about i mean i'm sure this is going to regress but i i looked at all of the playoff years since 1995 so the wild card era i looked at this last night didn't do anything with it but i was just curious you know i just do 30 minutes of research for fun (laughs) for no reason in the middle of the night (laughs) so this is the highest average duration of the wild card era so far now i would expect that this will regress down a little bit just because it's so extreme but once again we're looking at a a run increase from the regular season of one-tenth of a run per nine innings and we're at 40 more minutes now playoff games always yeah. take longer this has been true this was not so much of an outlier when i looked at the 23 years of, of data i think there was one year that was at like 217 minutes and there were a few other years that were over 200 minutes but uh i think it was jeff passan had a tweet yesterday after the the astros came back to knock off the red sox he yeah. said like that was a four hour whatever game but every minute was worth it mm-hmm. very suspenseful and and you know that's true that game that game was great just like how the the clayton kershaw dodgers nationals game five last year was great even though that game took like seven hours and 13 minutes basically to play nine innings it took way too long but it was great every minute was not every minute but many of the minutes were gripping but if we're going to be honest i don't want to be one of those guys who just sits here and complains about how long baseball takes and no. that's not fun that's not why anybody watches and nobody likes to hear that mm-hmm. and i enjoy the playoffs but the playoffs cannot have an average game length no. of three hours and 45 minutes <laughs> no. per nine innings That's that crazy. is untenable yeah people will not accept that no. and these games are taking too long a baseball game is three hours in the playoffs you can give it three and a half that should be plenty mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is that the cubs for some reason the only game playing today is at like 2 30 my time which that's fine with me that's great i'll take it but i'm not going to expect that game to be over by 5 36 i'm yeah i'm that's probably going to go until seven o'clock for no reason yeah i don't know i mean I know, I get it. There are longer commercial breaks and we've seen more pitching changes, but 40 minutes <laughs> yeah. per nine innings? Yeah. How? It's crazy. How yeah. is it happening? And I really, yeah, I, like you said, I don't want to be the guy who's complaining about this because he 
has a deadline or whatever. Like <laughs> I was in the press box for the game yesterday. I didn't even end up writing anything just because the game just didn't lend itself to any interesting <laughs> angle, I didn't think. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sure, that was maybe part of it, but that wasn't most of it. I mean, I was at the wild card game and that had its slow moments too, but I was pretty riveted during that. And Monday's game, I, I was just, it was mind-numbing. It was, There were so many pitching <laughs> changes and mostly not with a, a very close score and it was just a very slow game and and I'm trying not at least to say this from the perspective of someone whose job involves watching or writing about these games it's just that is a long time to ask your typical fan who is even just watching one team to watch baseball and it's unpredictable how long the game will go but it's predictable that it will be a long time and given that the games are mostly starting later too that is just a it's especially as the the postseason goes on and there are fewer games per day that is just a, a really a lot to ask so i don't know what the solution is i mean obviously playoff games get longer because there are longer ad breaks and that sort of thing but it's also the game on the field and i think it's it's been shown right that there's a longer time between pitches in the playoffs which mm-hmm. Again, makes sense. Every pitch matters. And so, I mean, that happens during the regular season, too. In high leverage moments, the game slows down. And in the postseason, just every moment is high leverage just about. (laughs) And so it's understandable. And there are tons of pitching changes because managers are trying to get the edge as often as they can. So I can't really tell them to manage the game differently. So I don't know what the solution is other than, I suppose when i will say when not if the pitch clock comes in that would cut down on at least some of it at least that tendency to take longer time between pitches mm-hmm. so maybe that'll help a bit but yeah i mean once you're getting much closer to four hours than three on a regular basis that is people will sit through a longer game just because the stakes are higher but man these are these are some slow games so <laughs> shout out to the uh the cubs and nationals there have been 16 yes. playoff games so far and uh the cubs and nationals have played three of them and those are the three shortest games of yeah. the playoffs so far so they're the team hooray that's, pitching <laughs> yeah that's the series that's actually had good starting pitching so it's it's not a coincidence so one more tweet i saw about this issue one wanted to ask what you thought. This was from Forrest McCracken yesterday. Forrest, Mm -hmm. obviously the kind of discoverer of BABIP, writer of that seminal article at Baseball Prospectus that got everyone thinking about defense-independent pitching stats, has consulted for various teams, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I will repeat what I said last year. Either pitcher usage in the playoffs is broken or pitcher usage in the regular season is broken. And I believe he tweeted this during that sale Verlander game. Do you think this is true? Do you think it has to be true? And if so, do you have any ideas about the way in which it would be true? I think he was saying essentially that he actually had a follow-up tweet. He said, if this usage has effects on sale and Verlander's next start, you're borrowing from today and paying tomorrow. And he said, you know, maybe you wouldn't uh, exactly manage like this in the regular season, but that if you think this is helping you in the playoffs, then some version of it must be helpful to you in the regular season. So do you agree with that? Well, I guess you could say that there are interpretations which would be 
agreeable Mm -hmm. but as gets discussed every october the playoffs in the regular season are just very simply quite different and in the regular season you i mean for one thing you have farm system you can dip into in the regular season but you just have so many more games and fatigue just adds up and you don't have the same adrenaline factor and and in the playoffs like if if you take the astros and you're you're using verlander in game four because you just want to have that bridge to get to giles well then sure you're you're sort of borrowing maybe from verlander's next start But you're also trying to prevent the existence of a game five in the first place, which would, Mm -hmm. in theory, sort of add to your team. I don't know, maybe add to your team's chances of winning in the ALCS because you're giving them a little more rest. And certainly you're just trying to not give yourself an opportunity to lose the next game. And you certainly can't expect that in the regular season you could have something like Verlander and Sale coming out of the bullpen in between their starts because that would be insane. They would just they would die. They would literally die on the field. They would just become dead people. And then be like, well, now we just lost two of the best starting pitchers in the world because we just used them out of the bullpen as well. Well, yeah. So he's right that when you have these things happening in the playoffs, you are borrowing. When you are using, when you are leaning on a pitcher heavily in some way that the pitcher is not used to, you are borrowing something from the future, but you just don't face this kind of single game leverage in the regular mm-hmm. season almost ever. So I, I get that maybe managers focus a little too much on the game in hand and they don't think about the fact that you are affecting your future chances, but the effect that you're having on the future chances is so nebulous and unknowable. I think that if the Astros needed, I mean, what, David Price jogged out to the bullpen yesterday after throwing something like 50 pitches in game three. Like, David Price is almost certainly not available mm-hmm. for yesterday's game, and he's throwing with a quarter of an elbow right now anyway, but yeah. something tells me he would have been able to go out there and muster a few fastballs at 95 miles per hour just because this is this is the playoffs. And I in the postseason compared to the regular season, I think that maybe maybe teams and managers just have a higher tolerance for injury risk because Mm -hmm. you are using these pitchers in such a way that you are trying to end the season with your players having nothing left in the tank, which you can't do in the regular season. And that's dangerous. And maybe it shouldn't be that way. But I guess it's it's a helpful indicator that the playoffs really do matter a lot to these people. And we can talk about the playoffs being random or, or maybe all the money's in the regular season or whatever. And maybe this is just a glorified tournament. And it is just a glorified tournament. But this is what they're all playing for. And I don't know. I get the general point, but... I think that there are too many differences to have that message really, uh, I don't know, ring true, hit home. Mm-hmm. You, you pick the expression. Yeah, no, I think I'm with you there. I think just this is not necessarily a sign that pitcher usage is broken at either time. It's just a sign that pitcher usage has to be different at those two times because the format is different. It's just a, a different version of baseball. And I think the two versions of baseball are diverging as time goes on. If you had looked at early postseason baseball, which was essentially just the World Series, I'm not sure that you would have seen all that much difference because at that point, starters basically finished all their games. So you would just start your starter and that would be that. Maybe you'd pitch them more often or occasionally bring them in out of the bullpen, but there just wasn't all that much to do and the schedule wasn't so different. So I think we're in a place now where we have these two brands of baseball in a way that we didn't before, but I don't think that necessarily means that one has to become more like the other. So I thought what I like about the way that pitchers are used in the playoffs is you and I and so many people People agree that the playoffs are essentially random and you can't really build a great team for the playoffs in such a way where you can really like cement your probability of winning the whole thing. But I like the way that teams use these different strategies because it at least allows me to believe in the illusion that there's more 
control. Yeah. I don't like the idea of the playoffs being as random as they as they really are. Mm-hmm. And so now if you think about it, yesterday, yesterday the Red Sox nearly beat the Astros because Andrew Benintendi hit one of the stupidest home runs you can hit in Major League Baseball, <laughs> and the Cubs beat the Nationals because Anthony Rizzo hit a terrible pop-up that just happened to follow in between a couple defensive players. So, like, Anthony Rizzo didn't really do anything good, but the Cubs won anyway. It was a clutch outcome, but not really a clutch result. Anyway, so there there is clearly a lot of luck involved, and maybe the Nationals didn't deserve to lose, and maybe the Red Sox didn't deserve to pull ahead, but I still am firmly of the belief that the playoffs are very chaotic and random but i don't like it and i would prefer it to not be true and so to see teams going to such i guess relative extremes to try to win every single game it makes me it makes me feel good because it it allows me to sort of believe that there's a greater amount of actual human agency in these games no I, i know what you mean i was thinking that too and it it does seem true. I mean, there are ways, of course, in which the playoffs favor certain teams over others just because of the way their rosters are constructed. But it is true that, like, the outcome in the late innings, for instance, I guess is is less uncertain than it would be in a typical game, for instance. Like, if the Yankees are ahead after seven or something like that, like they were yesterday, they were less likely to blow that game than they would be, presumably, during the regular season just because they would be willing to use anyone and everyone and you know they brought Batantis out and he couldn't throw a strike and just looked broken and so he was removed and Tommy Kainley came in and was great I mean it just seemed like how could they possibly allow three runs here it just seemed almost impossible now it probably wasn't actually I don't know if the (laughs) odds are are actually all that different but yeah I know what you mean it does seem like just because teams are doing things differently and really pulling out all the stops that in a way it's a truer reflection of the team's respective talent levels than say your typical three or four game series in May or whatever would be. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that both teams are doing that. And so (laughs) maybe that kind of just cancels that out. It's not like one team is kind of pressing that advantage and the other is not. They are both pressing that advantage. So yeah, right. And it's sort of testing a talent level that we don't ever test except for in October. Because again, these teams are are behaving differently from how we've seen them for the previous six months. And it's funny talking about the, the Yankees less chance to blow it in the later innings. And I was just remembering off the top my head well let's see chad green recently gave up a grand slam craig yep. kimbrell just allowed a couple runs yesterday andrew miller allowed a home run to greg bird to let the yankees win the other game mm-hmm. like even even the dominant guys except for kelly jansen who's bulletproof have like allowed runs but whatever you're right because every team is doing it it means that maybe there's less of an advantage to be gained but again if you if you figure that okay teams are behaving in ways that are different from what we saw all regular season but still the playoffs are always the goal and they have built teams to try to win in the playoffs then even though this is the first time we get to see them tested yeah it's comforting to to try to believe that teams are doing the teams have maybe a greater amount of control over the outcome than than they really do Mm -hmm. i uh, i always prefer less randomness even though i am a strong believer in the randomness of the game Mm -hmm. all right so are there any particular plays decisions that you think we should touch on i think we probably missed our chance to talk about joe girardi and the replay debacle and the hit by pitch debacle i wrote about it everyone wrote about it people are probably sick (laughs) of hearing about it so there's the the national series which is ongoing at least as we speak if not necessarily when you the listener are hearing this and that's a, a weird one because as 
John Taylor of Sports Illustrated tweeted, the Nationals have gotten 12 no-hit innings from Strasburg and Scherzer combined (laughs) and lost both of those starts somehow, which is very Nationals in the playoffs. Unfortunately for them, things like this keep happening to them. I don't know what to make of that because obviously in this postseason particular, when starters are getting yanked immediately, if you get 12 no-hit innings out of your starters in two games, that seems almost impossible to lose. But of course, the Cubs have gotten good pitching too and have just had timely hits and, and that's that. And so the controversy, which we already touched on, was should Dusty Baker have removed Scherzer? And, you know, I don't know. We kind of talked about that already, but this is just a lot of misfortune. Obviously, there was earlier managerial controversy in this series in Joe Madden's handling of his bullpen when Harper hit the home run and Zimmerman hit the home run to tie it and win it, respectively. Any thoughts from this series on either of those things or anything else? I think that I came into this expecting that the Cubs and Nationals, not that we ever really know these things ahead of time, but I figured that the Cubs and Nationals would be the the closest series. And even though it's not necessarily going to go to five games, we could, we'll see what happens on Tuesday. I think it's all the games have felt extremely close because they've all been extremely close. But I was, I was less surprised to see Scherzer come out because I think that made enough sense. But I was more surprised to see that the reliever that Baker went to was Sammy Solis. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, this is maybe my own my own thing, but I've I've pretty much never before once thought of Sammy Solis, <laughs> and I had to look up his numbers. I had to confirm that he is indeed left-handed. I haven't gone through all the splits because, again, I'm I'm one of those people who's of the firm belief that at the end of the day, it's the players who make the difference, and the managers are mm-hmm. just there to very narrowly shift the probabilities around. And I certainly don't want to I don't know impugn the managerial character of Dusty Baker because at the end of the day, he's he's a winner at least <laughs> in the regular season. His teams tend to be good. That that all being said, Max Scherzer was removed in the seventh inning. He had just allowed a one-out double to Ben Zobrist, first hit of the game, and Kyle Schwarber was coming up, so I get why Baker wanted to go to a lefty so that he could pitch to Schwarber, which he didn't get to do because the Cubs also have a bench, so they were able to go to Albert Almora, and Almora hit a line drive single. I just don't quite understand why when the Nationals had a one-run lead, uh, there was a runner in scoring position, and they had eight outs to go. Why did this not go right to Sean Doolittle or Ryan Madsen? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's my only question. This is maybe one of those little indicators that as much as we're talking about playoff trends and pitcher usage, Dusty Baker is sort of out there on an island. <laughs> he uh, he did not elect to lean heavily on his best reliever. His best reliever is Sean Doolittle. And I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I'm pretty sure Doolittle doesn't have much of a platoon split. I do know that he has very good out numbers in that he gets a lot of outs, probably a lot more outs than Sammy Solis gets, especially if you figure that Solis is going to come in and he's probably not going to face a lefty. Mm-hmm. So you you're talking about Solis versus a righty or Scherzer versus a lefty or Doolittle versus, I don't know if the Cubs would have hit for Schwarber in that case, but I mean, Doolittle or Schwarber, there's two outcomes. Schwarber's going to hit a home run 8% of the time and he's going to strike out 92% of the time. So whatever. I'm going to leave that one alone, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm I'm less concerned. You pull Scherzer, he's going through the order for the third time. He's already thrown 98 pitches. He was hurt recently, so whatever. I get it. I, get, I don't know how long Baker would have stuck with Scherzer if he didn't allow a hit just because you know, his pitch count was just about to climb over 100. But Solis was was a weird one. And I would uh, I would question that. And even though I think we all understand there are better indicators than ERA, Sammy Solis's ERA this year was just about six. That's a very high ERA, mm-hmm. not the kind of ERA that you want to be pitching in that kind of situation. No idea why that wasn't Doolittle. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the Nationals had the most innings or highest percentage of innings pitched by their starters this year, at least among mm-hmm. National League teams, maybe among all teams. But that's not like Dusty Baker doing a, a wooden prior kind of thing. It's just that they had a good rotation and for much of the year, a bad bullpen and I don't think he was really running anyone into the ground. That was just a a smart way to handle the players he had at the time. And I think it was Joshian pointed out in his preview of this series that the Nats had also done very well. Nats pitchers relative to the league in pitching in third time through the order situations just you know probably again because Strasburg is good and Scherzer is good (laughs) and uh, he also mentioned that the Cubs had been I think the best at hitting the third time through the order or hitting pitchers they were facing for the third time in a game I don't know whether that means anything could just be random could mean I guess that they're just better as a team at picking up things about pitchers the first couple times they see them and then using those things the third time or maybe they see a lot of pitches they wear down pitchers who are then tired the third time they face them I don't know what it means exactly but he highlighted that as a factor that could help decide this series and I guess it kind of hasn't I don't know just because I don't know if it has or it hasn't I I guess in this case Scherzer wasn't allowed to test that and stay out there so it didn't really come into play in the pivotal situations but it's it's obviously a tough luck series if you get to great starts like that in three games and you are still losing the series so it would be I'm sure extremely depressing and upsetting for Nationals fans if they get booted again from the playoffs without winning a series even though they've had a lot going for them in this playoffs but that will be decided soon I guess we could briefly discuss the series that are over we did talk about the Red Sox and Astros handling of their pitchers in that decisive game four but Red Sox are done Diamondbacks are done and nothing all that surprising about the outcomes of these series really we still haven't seen an upset in any playoff matchup this year this was kind of how we expected it to go I don't know whether anyone would have expected a sweep in the Diamondbacks Dodgers series because the Diamondbacks are really good but the Dodgers it seems have fixed their flaws such as they ever were and are playing well and just outplayed the Diamondbacks I don't know how much there is to say about that I mean obviously they had impressive games from say Cody Bellinger for instance who I've watched that video of him going into the dugout to catch the foul ball (laughs) several times trying to figure out whether his teammates or someone should have helped him more or not I don't know whether they were worried about interfering with him or you know like getting in his way or having the catch invalidated or something because he was being propped up by players in his dugout or something but looked like he almost seriously hurt himself while a lot of people just kind of sat there and watched so that was made for a lot of good gifts and screenshots as did the fact that the Diamondbacks had horseback police uh, <laughs> guarding their pool so that the <laughs> Dodgers couldn't go swim in it which was what excellent. what was going to happen what was going to happen if the Dodgers went over and they wanted to celebrate in the pool I mean it happened once before right and it was a Uh whole big thing for whatever reason because baseball is very silly sometimes but yeah mounted police guarding (laughs) guarding the pool from any incursion by Dodgers players that was very amusing (laughs) enjoyed that quite a bit what would the police would they would they shoot Cody Bellinger if he wanted to go for a swim like what was would they arrest like could look I get it if there's police there like probably don't cross the police just don't yeah don't focus on the pool but still what a it's that's just security theater that's all that is there's mm-hmm. just just the 
the Chase Field TSA <laughs> on yeah. horseback. Uh, yeah, so I guess for anyone who, who laments the way that the playoffs don't necessarily select for the best teams, we've seen the better Yankees eliminate the worst Twins. We've seen the better Diamondbacks eliminate the worst Rockies. We've seen the better Dodgers eliminate the worst Diamondbacks. And we've seen the better Astros eliminate the worst Red Sox. So, so far, everything is going about right. Mm-hmm. The Indians and Yankees are both extremely good given their playoff build. So it makes sense that they're going the distance. Cubs and Nationals, I don't really have a clear favorite. One of the weird things... So, first of all, when, when Bellinger made that catch, I it was the last out of the inning, and Bellinger would have been returning to the dugout anyway. Yeah. So, like... <laughs> In one sense, good for him for getting a head start. <laughs> I, I wish that the camera didn't cut away because I wanted to know. Bellinger made the catch and then he had to, I guess, show that he had the ball in his glove. But the camera cut away before I could see whether Bellinger returned to the field before returning to the dugout. Because mm. I feel like if I were him, I would have just fallen into the dugout and then just immediately sat down. Because <laughs> why bother going back down yeah. but or going back out? But uh, alas, no replay indicator. He just fell into the dugout and avoided getting seriously injured. Did a very clever little move with his glove hand, I think it was. Maybe it was his other hand to grab the railing down the stairs to brace his fall. Uh, just very, very thoughtful. A very thoughtful catch by Cody Bellinger. Mm-hmm. One of the surprise, I guess there were questions. There were a lot of questions about the Dodgers pitching, but you go into the series and you've got Kershaw and Hill and Darvish getting the starts, and Darvish looked really good but you know there were legitimate questions about the Dodgers middle relief and it's just kind of shocking to see that the Dodgers bullpen aside from Kelly Jansen the two primary bridges are Tony Singrani and Brandon Morrow and they're mm. good yeah which is just you know funny bullpens but also Kenta Maeda mm-hmm. uh, made two appearances out of the bullpen he lasted two innings uh, two clean innings four strikeouts and Kenta Maeda has been sitting 95 miles per hour <laughs> yeah in the I I get we've seen all the research that says starters are better when they relieve and they throw harder when they relieve but it's not true for everyone mm-hmm. some guys adapt better to the bullpen than others Archie Bradley gained like four miles per hour out of the bullpen I never would have looked at Kenta Maeda and assumed that guy's <laughs> stuff is going to play up. He just didn't seem the type, you know? But yeah, here he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really hard to predict. And that is, I think, one of the best things about the playoffs is that you get to see people pitching in ways that you don't normally and so David Price can suddenly be a hero and have Red Sox fans applaud him for once (laughs) because he pitches great out of the bullpen and obviously he'd been very effective out of the bullpen at the end of the regular season too and yeah you you never really know like you put John Lackey in the bullpen for instance and you don't really expect John Lackey to come out like firing 99 or something but you never really know until these guys get a shot at doing it because like David Price, even with no elbow, looks unhittable coming out of of the bullpen. And and yeah, Maeda, I wouldn't have said, oh, that guy has like the intensity that is typical of a closer who comes in and is so amped up at his you know, throwing extra hard because of that role. But yeah, it has worked out that way. By the way, I like that stat that Darren Willman had about how the slowest fastball the Yankees threw in game four was 96 miles per hour. Oh my gosh. I believe it was the (laughs) first fastball. I think I noticed that Severino threw like a, a 96 mile per hour fastball to start off the game, which I took to be a positive sign because if he, if he was like, overexcited for the wildcard game as I think even his teammates and manager implied that he might have been I think first pitch he threw in the wildcard game was 99 I mean it's not unusual for him first of all he averages like 
98 or something. It's crazy. But he got up to that even later in that first at bat. He was touching triple digits, I think. But just the fact that he took a couple of miles per hour off that very first pitch of the game seemed like maybe a sign that whatever <laughs> adrenaline he had coursing through his veins in the wildcard game was a little more subdued the second time around. Anyway, that gives you some idea of why the Yankees are a formidable postseason team, at least when they have Severino going, who throws really hard, and then everyone out of the bullpen throws really hard. But then they also have Masahiro Tanaka, who, as you documented, does not throw very hard and does not need to and is making fastballs obsolete. So that worked for them, too. Yeah, the Yankees are simultaneously like the hardest throwing team ever, but also the team that throws the fewest fastballs ever. Yeah. (laughs) Or at least, you know, like on record. So and there are obvious reasons, guys like Tanaka, Cece Sabathia, and Jordan Montgomery are really dragging down those fastball numbers because they just don't have very good fastballs, so they don't throw them very often. But I got an interesting comment. I wrote a post that was fine about Tanaka the other day and how Tanaka might just one day kill the fastball. Like in his start against the Indians, I think he threw 16% fastballs, and so he threw 15 fastballs and zero cutters according to Brooks Baseball, out of 92 pitches. So he had the lowest fastball rate and the lowest hard pitch rate of his entire career by a a decent margin against the Indians. And he was just splitter and slider and curve and splitter and slider and curve. And somebody commented, well, why why is it that we don't consider his splitter to be a fastball? And I mean, I don't I don't know. Like, I don't have a good answer to this. Pitch (laughs) classification is weird. Like, you know, you talk about like uh, Brooks Baseball will classify a cutter as a hard pitch. Uh, because a cutter is like a cut fastball. Well, a splitter can be a split finger fastball. And I don't really know what Tanaka throws. His splitter on average is about four or five miles per hour slower than his fastball, but it's only two miles per hour slower than his cutter. So is is his splitter his fastball? He kind of uses it like he uses his fastball. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Tana- Masahiro Tanaka is, I guess, killing the regular fastball. But if... <laughs> yeah. It's really a matter of interpretation because he uses his splitter so much and it's clearly his best pitch. So maybe that is a fastball. I I don't know is is the point. Mm-hmm. Masahiro Tanaka either doesn't throw fastballs or he does and his fastball is insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, is there anything that we haven't touched on? It's hard to know when an episode about the playoffs is over because there's like always some other angle. I will say that I think Gary Sanchez has been doing an excellent job behind the plate. (laughs) We talked about that craziness about people saying that Sanchez should be benched or DH or play first base or something. Obviously, he's blocked by Greg Bird anyway at this point, but I think he's done a good job. It looked like he was getting a lot of extra strikes. Maybe it was a a larger-than-usual zone for both teams in Game 4, but he seemed to be framing well. He blocked well in the Tanaka game. Don't think he had any wild pitches or pass balls, even though Tanaka was, as he always does, throwing lots of splitters in the dirt. Looked good. Obviously has been hitting, too. Just kind of drove home the insanity of questioning whether Gary Sanchez should start playoff games and that was uh, an extremely sloppy game for the Indians defensively and I wasn't sure what to make of that. Like for a second, I was thinking of, you know, well, maybe I could write, oh, this is the secret weakness of the Indians. They have this incredible pitching staff, but their defense isn't actually that good. I don't know if that's true. I mean, (laughs) if you go by UCR, defensive runs saved, they're a very good defensive team. If you go by like defensive efficiency or park adjusted defensive efficiency, actually not that good. So maybe there's something to that. But the people who were screwing up mostly in game four were not people I would classify as bad defenders with the possible exception of 
Kipnis in center field, which is kind of questionable. And he looked awkward on that one sack fly where he didn't really set up well. But for the most part, it was like, you know, Roberto Perez is a very good blocker and framer. He just had a ball pop out of his glove for whatever reason. Ursula is a good third baseman and he caused like a bunch of runs to score on his own with a a couple bad plays a ball that just ate him up and another ball where he just looked towards second and then threw wide to first so I don't know if there's any larger significance to that it was just a a sloppy game for them right in the same way that yesterday at one point even in the seventh inning the Cubs had zero runs zero hits and four errors yeah which I mean the Cubs don't have a bad defense but you know Ben Zobra said something happened and Jose Quintana had something happen and Kyle Schwarber had two things happen on the exact same play so Mm -hmm. Schwarber kind of schwarbed it over there in left field and that nearly proved to be a a very costly mistake but the Cubs rallied away from that and I think that the it's easy to want to build up a strong narrative that, that says something about oh this isn't how the Indians play and something is clearly wrong they just can't close out the Yankees whatever that's nonsense but it is not nonsense to point out well this isn't how the Indians play and something went very much awry and it opened the door for the Yankees so as long as you don't make too much of it it is definitely extraordinary and those are those are the fun games to talk about (laughs) the games where really 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 weird and unusual things happen Mm -hmm. all right well we have a game later today as we speak this is Arietta versus Roark in Chicago, which in theory should favor the Cubs, and that would be the end of that series, but we have no idea what to expect from Jake Arietta. essentially. He pitched like 10 innings since the start of September, so I don't know, and... Then, And then the day after that, we've got Sabathia versus Kluber in Game 5 in Cleveland, which seems like a pretty heavy mismatch in favor of Cleveland. I did not really expect to see CeCe Sabathia going in a decisive playoff game this year, but that's where we are. I guess you could criticize the way the Yankees lined up their rotation. Maybe you could say that Tanaka should have started earlier in the series or that Severino could have because he barely pitched in the wildcard game. I don't know. That's hindsight for me at least so that clearly seems to favor Cleveland but you know I always find myself like I can sense when I'm about to say something like (laughs) it's the playoffs anything can happen (laughs) I like I can hear the words about to come out of my my mouth and Obviously, they are true words, but I I hate to say them again just because we have to say them so often. So I just stopped that sentence right there. Yeah. Okay. So let me just say this because this is weird. You think of Jake Arrieta and you have an impression in your head. That's fine. And you think of Tanner Roark and you probably have another impression in your head. Certainly, we're not. I don't pay very close attention to Tanner Roark. I'm sorry for any huge... (laughs) Tanner Roark fans out there, but he's just not the most interesting Nationals pitcher for me to pay attention to. So I still kind of held on to this old impression I had of him as being like a a pitch to contact kind of Mm. maybe weak contact guy who I never really believed in. So, okay, this year, Tanner Roark, faster, average fastball than Jake Arrieta Mm. by a little bit. And in the second half, Tanner Roark has struck out more than a quarter of his opponents, which means in the second half, he had a higher strikeout rate than Jake Arrieta. So who knows what that's about, but Tanner Roark, not the Tanner Roark you thought he was, unless you're Nationals fan, in which case you are way ahead of me. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of playoff matchups like that that maybe seem more like mismatches than they actually are. Like even in the NL wildcard game, Granky versus Gray seemed like something of a mismatch. But if you go back to like the beginning of the second half or when Gray came back, they were basically the same pitcher down the stretch and neither of them pitched well. But that's just uh, one example that stood out to me. So, all right. Well, we have kind of previewed those last two games then. So we will reconvene most likely tomorrow and we'll take emails. So send us some emails. We'll talk about them soon. 
Excellent. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who've already pledged their support include Mark Santos, Mitchell Dixon, Alexander Elschultz, Shane Allen, and Casey Shankland. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. There's never a better time to be in that group than the playoffs. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at fangrass.com or through the Patreon messaging system. Also check out the Ringer MLB show feed for regular episodes also about the playoffs. We will talk to you very soon. Mm-hmm.